Good morning. It's funny, uh, the different stages of life Larry and I are in. Larry was very thankful for the railing, and I thought, is it appropriate to slide down after my sermon this morning? <laughs> but uh, I'll just save that for the weekday. Each week, um, for the past eight weeks, you've been coming, and we've been studying the book of Hebrews, and in the book of Hebrews, there's been this overarching theme that we've been touching on week after week after week, and that theme is that Jesus is a better and greater solution than anything you could turn to or imagine. And you know what most humans are longing for, searching for, working for is Things like peace and joy, security and identity. People want hope and they want love. And when our relationship with God is right, those things are ours. The Bible presents this portrait of fellowship with God being restored and mankind being healed. But in sin, we've broken that relationship. And in our sin and in our rebellion, we search for those things, those things we want like peace and joy security and love we search for those things outside of God maybe for us we search for them in our work or our social status our abilities to do things our relationships and maybe even we search for those things in our religion without God but the Hebrew writer comes along and he says listen out of all those things that you're searching for out of all those things you're turning to to find what you're really wanting Jesus is better He's greater. We've said so far that Jesus is the greater word, that his word for us and to us is greater than any word that's been given. He's the greater man. He has been presented as a person who is a greater being than any other person who's ever lived. He's a greater rest. That when you understand who he is and what he did and how that impacts you, your soul rests like it's never rested before. We've said that he's a greater help. He comes alongside of us, not just to assist in trivial matters, but he's the one that walks alongside of us to solve our deepest needs. And we've said that he's a greater priest, that nobody stands on our behalf and defends us and talks for us and guards us and protects us and guides us like Jesus does. He offers a greater covenant that with his own blood, he has sealed to us a relationship with the father that allows for us to have grace and blessing. And last week, Matt presented to us that Jesus is the greatest offering that's ever been given. That there is actually no other offer that can be presented to God that makes us, makes us acceptable except Jesus Christ. And so he is the greatest offering. And that's the major chord, if you will, you music people out there. You know, the major chord is the the chord that's kind of bright and cheery, it excites us. That's the major chord of the book. Of, am I right, Abby? The, the major, okay, good. I, just, I Googled it. I checked it on Google, so Google's usually right. The major chord is usually the bright and cheery chord, the one that's a little bit upbeat. And the major chord of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. But there's also a minor chord, which is a chord of darkness chord of warning it's a chord that grabs your attention and makes you come alive and be alert 
You've got to pay attention when you hear the minor chord. Something is trying to be said to us. And the major chord, Jesus is greater, is beautiful, but there's a minor chord that's just as important, and that's this. Don't miss him. The major chord, Jesus is great. The minor chord, you better not miss out. Throughout the book of Hebrews, it's saturated with this major chord of grace and mercy and access to the throne. But alongside of it, there's this undertone. There's this theme underneath the the major theme, which is don't miss it. In chapter 2, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect this salvation? Chapter 3, verse 12 says, work together with each other to not harden your heart so that you would miss out on this. Chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 11 calls for us to wake up and to be alert. Chapter 5, verse 12 shakes us when it says we're immature. And he says we ought to be mature believers by now, but we're still immature. We ought to grow up. And chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 is almost bone chilling when it says that those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, but yet then turn back. Where will their repentance be? And now we come to chapter 10, verses 19 through 39, which is this subtle pause. And we're at a transition point in our series because we're actually done telling you how great Jesus is. After this week, the next three weeks, I'm going to tell you how we respond to this. Chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews is a call to us on how we respond to Jesus Christ. But in the middle between how great Jesus is and how you need to respond is this warning that is the greatest warning you can hear. You know, it's a warning that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. It's a warning that stands in the middle of our text that reasons with us in verse 28. Listen how he says it. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. This, this is a common understanding that if you set aside, disregarded, and disobeyed the law of Moses, that person was taken out to the camp, to the, to the front of the camp, and they were stoned to death. And that's how they amplified and suggested that God's law was right and good for their community. He says that was understood under the law of Moses. With the, uh, with the witness of two or three, a person was, di- was killed. But listen to verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God? The greater warning of God here is a warning of punishment. You know, the Bible's not really shy about the idea of punishment. It talks about punishment a lot. Um, if God were a really a loving and just and gracious God, he would be willing and just and loving to tell us about a pending punishment. It's described in the Bible several ways. It's described as misery. It's described as loneliness. It's described as an existence of darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's described as an existence apart from the presence of God. And it's described as eternal, that which has no end. I think it's so overwhelming for us that we don't like to think about it. And it's this aspect of God that makes us, as a lot of times Western people, very uncomfortable. 
you know, we're pretty comfortable in our culture with a God of grace, with a God of mercy, and with a God of love. Oftentimes, we want a God of accommodation, but not really a God of accountability. A God who provides comfort and pleasure, but we want nothing to do with a God that, has some, that speaks of condemnation and punishment. And here's the great warning today that I want us to talk about. In light of how great Jesus Christ is, there is also a great punishment. And we're just going to ask and answer two really simple questions. Who and why? The who is the culpability of sinners. The why is the character of God. Why punishment? Who and why? Let's start with the who. The culpability of sinners. The accountability of sinners. Hebrews 10, 26-29 tells us about this. The question might be, well, who is in danger actually of this punishment? Who are these people that stand in the way of judgment? In verses 26-29, he explains these people. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but fearful expectation of judgment and a, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Who are these people? Let's talk, first of all, their status. What I mean by that is the position they're in, the way they're living. He says, first of all, in verse 26, that these people have a knowledge of the truth. This is a phrase that is not just referring to um, an awareness to bib biblical facts. Who were the first man and woman on earth? Um, what was the name of the Son of God? What town was he born in? He's not talking about an awareness of biblical facts. What he's talking about when he says an awareness or a knowledge of truth is that there has been a connection, an understanding of reality. That these persons actually know what's real in the world and in the universe. They've got an understanding of who God is, that he's created this world. They've got an understanding of the design of life, that we were actually created by God to walk in his ways. This person also understands that they have rebelled. And that punishment is the rightful judgment of those who have rebelled. And yet this person who is, has a knowledge of the truth, an awareness of reality, sins willfully. They willfully sin. Now this is important for you to see the tense in which he's writing this. He says they go on willfully sinning. This is in the present active tense. So this means that it's not just one sin. So if you're sitting back in the pew thinking, okay, what is the one sin that puts me in danger? And what are the sins that are kind of on the safe list, right? We all maybe might differentiate at times. There are sins that are not so bad and then sins that are pretty bad. And is there a sin that's on the list that puts me all the way out versus a sin that you know, God is unhappy with, but he'll overlook. He's not talking about a list of sins. He's talking about the human will. The willfulness of sin. He's talking about a mindset. 
someone that wants to sin, someone that wants to squeeze in sin, but not experience consequence, someone who wants to maybe um, calculate how much time they have left on earth and maybe fit in as much pleasure, indulgence, and what the Bible calls sin as possible, and then sneak in at the last moment, or maybe live as close to the line as possible. Like, how far is too far, right? Teenagers ask that question sometimes to youth ministers. How far is too far? And adults, they don't ask the question. They just live the question. (laughs) Here's Here's the reality of that question. It's the wrong question. If you find yourself ever asking the question, how far is too far? You're asking the wrong question. And that's dangerous. Because if what you're interested in is getting as close as possible to indulgence without getting in trouble, your mind is not right. It has nothing to do with your behavior. It has nothing to do with your actions. At that point, your mind is not right. He's talking about a mindset. Let me try to explain it this way. Um, Some of you know Lisa and I, Lisa, um, scheduled a nutritionist appointment for us about a month ago. We went to see a nutritionist to eat healthier, you know. Um, I guess fruit snacks and Mountain Dew is not really the way that you should live. Uh, she also has noticed that metabolism is catching up with me and or maybe slowing down for me. And so um, we went to see this nutritionist. Uh, we just actually got to see her on Tuesday. This really rude woman was in front of us taking too long uh, at the appointment. So we knocked on the door. We opened the door, and she was still in. It was Karina. I'm sorry. Karina was there, too. <laughs> Just kidding, Karina. <laughs> so we went to see this nutritionist, and the point of the nutritionist is not just to give us new recipes, but to actually teach us how to know how to eat healthy, right? That, that's the goal. That's what she's trying to do for us. And I'll tell you, in this process of about the last month, I've made some honest mistakes. Like at Starbucks, instead of getting, you know, a cappuccino with milk and all this syrup, I got just coffee with sugar-free vanilla. Sounds good, right? Mistake. I guess there's toxins in vanilla or something like that. Um, I was pretty hungry one night. After, after, after I ate dinner at like 6 o'clock and there was three hours left, and I've got two hours left of that right there, whatever we're dealing with, you know, and um, I'm still hungry. And so I eat some fruit, and the nutritionist tell me, well, listen, don't do fruit because there's a lot of sugar at night. You should do something like cottage cheese. I'm like, okay. I've made some honest mistakes in this process. But I've also willfully sinned. You see, we actually had two weeks between when we saw her and when we saw her next. And at these appointments, we weigh in. We stand on the scale. We see how we're doing. And you know when I cheat? When I've got enough time between the day and the weigh-in. But the couple days before the weigh-in, I don't cheat at all. In fact, I start running extra. (laughs) Skipping meals. Do you understand what willful sin is? Do you see it? God is not up there ready to zap you like King Triton the moment you make a mistake. What he's worried about, what he's concerned about, is the beauty of his children who are more interested in what they can get away with instead of getting close to him. Now let me tell you the significance of this. He tells you three things that make this significant. I've got to hurry, I'm sorry. Number one, He says, when we live this way, we trample underfoot the Son of God. 
It means that we insult him with neglect. And we offend him with prideful, smug arrogance. Jesus laid down his life so that sin would not just be forgiven, but destroyed. That's what John said. He came to earth to destroy the works of the devil. And we dabble in the works of the devil. And we trample underfoot the Son of God. Instead of treasuring him, we stop in, we get a little bit of religion to make our conscience feel better, and as we walk out, we step on his neck and disrespect him. Number two, he says we profane the blood of the covenant. It's kind of a weird word. We don't use the word profane much, but it's borrowed from Jewish language, from temple language, which means things that are common things that are ordinary, things that are not sacred or important. So what it means is we see the blood of the covenant that we just partook of that makes us one with Jesus. And we say it's just routine, it's just ordinary. There's nothing really special about it. We drink the cup and we say, nice juice. And we have no thought that we have just partaken of the most precious reality in the world. And third, he says, we have outraged the spirit of grace yes the holy spirit is not an it it's a him it's a being and when we are dismissive and disrespectful and more interested in our selfish indulgence than honoring the name of god who loves us and made us and cherishes us and cares for us we outrage god's spirit of grace we're saved by him and moved by him and then we see grace as a license to just do what we want until we get to the end and then we say we're sorry and we go on the fad diet and try to get in. And he says that situation, that status, that significance puts us in a situation where basically there is no sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the only sacrifice. And when we belittle, neglect, and disregard him, we are left without a sacrifice. Therefore, there is expectation of judgment you know with sin there are only two options there's always only two options we sometimes think there's a third but there's really not there's either judgment which is doling out of punishment or there's sacrifice the absorbing of cost there isn't a third way that just brushes things under the rug because when you brush things under the rug all you're doing is punishing people with the wrong punishment you get that parents that's what we're doing when we neglect and brush things under the rug, we are punishing with the wrong punishment. We're telling them that behavior is good. Keep doing it. That is a terrible punishment. It's the wrong punishment. There's only two responses to sin. Consequence or sacrifice. And if you opt with God out of sacrifice, all that's left is judgment. But many ask at this point, why? Does God have to really be this way? Sounds a little extreme, doesn't it? Is it necessary? Let me say, can't God just chill, right? Maybe we should ask him that. The answer is no. Because his judgment, his fury, his wrath come from the very same place of his love, his grace, and his mercy. Can you imagine if someone were offending and harming my wife? And I stood by and said, man, you guys, uh, that's never mind don't worry about it what would you think about my love for her if someone were disrespecting my wife and i said ah, whatever it's no big deal that would diminish not my judgment but my what 
my love for her, right? And the very same is true. You see, all of this comes from God's character. Who is God? Let me go quickly. Number one, he's a God of vengeance. We don't like that word because we think of the word revenge. It's not the same word. The word vengeance is the same exact root word as the word righteousness. And it just simply means to do the right thing. God is a God of vengeance. He does the right thing. He gives the right punishment. He distributes the right payment. God is a God who repays, not in a petty way. He just simply distributes the deserved penalty corresponding to what has been done. And he's a God who is passionate. God's not a little bit angry about sin. He's not a little bit kind of, you know, miffed by it. It says that he has a fury of fire. This is a fervent passion. This is like when your pot boils over on the stove. That's the same word, a fury. Because his character loves righteousness. He loves good in you, in him, and in all people. He is a God who, based upon the highest moral standards, is fair and just and will not compromise. He is the very being that you want on the bench of your courtroom. He is the very being you want as the principal of your kid's school. He's the very being that you want in the police car in your neighborhood. He's the very being you want to be as a parent. He's the one we want leading the companies that we work for and the governments that we live under. He's the being that we want. And we're frustrated when our leaders don't act like he acts. And yet when it comes to him, we're like, do we really have to be that way? Why is he this way? Or I'm sorry, that's who he is, but when is he this way? I've told you already. He's this way when there's no sacrifice for sin. You see, he's not sitting on a throne as some high and mighty righteous being waiting to punish people. You see, this God who looks down on injustice and sin and says, my character demands punishment was a God that also crawled off the throne came to earth, lived perfectly for us when we could not, sympathized with our weaknesses, although he was never weak, and stood before the judge as a perfect being and said, I know you demand justice, and they deserve punishment, but I'll take their place. I'll allow you, God, to be just and merciful in the same moment. See, at the cross, God was both holy and righteous and just, punishing sin and merciful and gracious and saving sinners. In one event, he did it both. He did both of them. Unbelievable. And he wants you to see the greatness of Jesus Christ. But he warns you, if you walk away from him and pursue other things to find all of that you want in life, at the end, you'll be left without a sacrifice and to stand before the judge. The great warning is Jesus is greater than anything you ever turn to. Don't miss him. Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So I want to commission you to reflect and receive how valuable you are to Jesus. And pause and ask, how valuable is Jesus to you? Let's stand and sing.